Good afternoon, everyone, and you're listening to Sit Down for a Toss-Up on WCCS Wheaton College Radio. I'm Adam Bass. Now, we are only four days away until Election Day, and the American public has taken an interest into politics that is unheard of. People are asking about early voting, polls, and turnout. Today, I'm sitting down with someone who has been studying politics since the 2007 election cycle, that being Louisiana native John Colvin. John graduated from Louisiana State University with a BS in accounting and is the current owner and founder of JMC Enterprises and Analytics in Louisiana. John, welcome to WCCS. Good to be here today. So one of the first questions we ask on Sit Down is, where did you get your start in your field and what inspired you to get into your line of work? So I've loved politics all my life, and I want to say that the earliest political memories I have are going all the way back to, gosh, 1978 perhaps, when we're talking about when Jimmy Carter was president and he had the Camp David peace accords. And then in 1979, everything fell apart in our country when the Shah of Iran was deposed and we had 52 hostages taken and gas prices surged to all of a dollar a gallon. And Jimmy Carter's presidency was rapidly unraveling. And that was the time that we had a Republican landslide from Ronald Reagan back in 1980. So I've been an avid uh, follower of politics ever since then. And basically, I did not figure out until over 10 years ago how to make a living from it. And that was through the data analytics side, because I have a background as a CPA and as a computer programmer. But it was not until I was a data analyst at Blue Cross that I figured out that that was how that I could, that was my end into the political world, because that was about at the time that analytics first started becoming a household world. And of course, Barack Obama popularized the idea in 2008 when they used every uh, every angle they could in the analytical world to get extra votes and to win caucuses and primaries and so forth. So that really was the genesis of my interest in politics. But really, I've been an avid follower going all the way back 40 plus years. Has there been any state or not state, any race or election that's caught your eye the most in your in your 40 years of work? You know, all one of the things you start to see after a while is elections tend to have certain commonalities to them. For instance, in this election, I see a lot of similarities to 2008 and even 1980 in terms of what I think the ultimate outcome would be. And the interesting thing about using 1980 as an example is that I found that crises basically expose a weakness that a president has in his or in his character, because of course thus far we've only had male presidents. But in Jimmy Carter's case, the hostage crisis basically revealed him as somebody who was not really a strong president and was being pushed around. And when you combine that with the fact that the Russians were moving in on Afghanistan and engaging in adventurism elsewhere, for instance, in Central America, and we had inflation and unemployment and and, uh, high interest rates, basically we had a weak president and the news media's daily documentation of how many days it has been since, quote-unquote, America's held hostage, all that reminds me a lot of the crisis that President Trump currently faces with the coronavirus. His weakness is he does not appear to take an interest in the day-to-day governing of being president. And And so I perceive there is a flippancy with regards to how he has dealt with the coronavirus crisis, and as much as he would like to wish it away, It's not going away anytime soon, and I think voters are rebelling against that because 
they basically want some leadership with regards to getting this solved. So I see a lot of similarities there. Then, of course, when the 2008 mentioned, what you had happen there was the Republicans lost very big in the 2006 midterms, and that loss was replicated again in 2008. And then, of course, Barack Obama came president in a landslide and swept many Democrats in with him. So, like I said, you start seeing the presidential elections have commonalities to them if you start watching enough of them or paying attention to enough of them, rather. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the general election um, as we are four days away, but you have been noted, noticing, um, as you've told, some interesting polling going on in district locations across America, not necessarily state or national polling, but district polling. Um, you have said that showing rather dire signs for President Trump, uh, we're seeing people like Dave Wasserman note that there is a red alert going on for the president in district polling, such as Michigan's 3rd District, Pennsylvania's 7th District. If you could elaborate on that, what district polling is to some of our listeners who really are just getting into politics for the first time, and what does that mean for the race? Right. So one of the things I think is most important to appreciate in the political world is that if you have access to polling data, or even if you're looking at it as a casual observer, the most important thing to appreciate is the context. In other words, what I'm most interested in when we're talking about a president who was elected with 46% of the popular vote four years ago is, how is he performing currently relative to what he did four years ago in those specified districts or states? So to give you one example of things I've seen that are not positive for the president, in some cases I'll have to use generalities because they involve races that are going on, and of course I don't want to reveal proprietary information. Of course. But one example I think is a good one to start is let's just say it is a district in Tennessee that you have a decent population of affluent and or well-educated people – And this was a district that was carried by Mitt Romney, and when President Trump carried it, his margin was cut in half. Well, all of a sudden, that same margin by which President Trump carried this district, I'm seeing Biden carrying it. So in other words, that is one of several examples I'm seeing over and over again regarding even though President Trump underperformed in certain areas that were white-collar and or affluent and or well-educated in 2016, if he can't even beat that benchmark this year, then not only is that a sign of trouble for him, but you have to wonder, okay, if he's losing votes relative to the 46% he received four years ago, where is he picking up corresponding votes to make up for that? And I'm not seeing that part. It'd be one thing if he, let's pretend he were pulling even in Illinois, or if he were running ahead in Michigan or Minnesota or places like that. But I've been seeing multiple examples of him running behind where he was in 2016, even in southern states. Not that I'm expecting those southern states to flip, but the constituencies where he's underperforming in matter a lot more in a state like a Georgia or a North Carolina or a Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan and so forth. So that's really, to me, the biggest point of these polls is you do have a lot of swing areas around the country. And what is characteristic of many of these swing areas is that they're white-collar professional constituencies, which stereotypically would have been Republican up until very recently. And it's interesting you mention him not making up the grounds in the areas that he needs. One thing that John Ralston of 
of Nevada, one of the few people in Nevada who knows the state really well, he is noting that President Trump is actually overperforming his rural margins from 2016. Now, obviously, right, and, yeah, yeah, go on. And what's, and what's interesting about that point is this. This is where you start having to look at simple mathematics to see if that matters or not. And a perfect mm -hmm. example is in a state like Nevada, it is essentially what I would call a city state, meaning that 70 percent of the state's population is concentrated in one county, which is Clark County or Las Vegas. So and then I would say about another 20 percent, if I remember right, is in Reno up in the northern part of the state. So Democrats run up the score in Clark County. Basically, they've been splitting the take in Reno, and then, of course, the Republicans do on the rural areas where you're talking roughly 10 or so percent of the vote. So what the issue is is it doesn't matter if President Trump gets 99 percent of the rural vote. If he's not competitive in Las Vegas or Reno, then mathematically he's out of luck. And that to me is the epitome of his problems across the country is these rural areas where he's performing strongly – are not well populated, and plus he got near the maximum that he could theoretically get four years ago in those same areas, so he doesn't really have anywhere to go in those strongholds, whereas if he's losing votes in suburban areas, that's the epicenter of his problems. I, it, yeah, I, I would agree with that. You can also see that, I think, in his rallies. He's rallying in very red areas of the country. I know he's going to be going to Bucks County, Pennsylvania on Saturday, but from what we're seeing, it's his plan seems to be, I won with just my base, that's how I won, which I don't think is true. Um, I don't think anyone thinks it's true. Um, and that's how I'm going to win, so I'm going to supercharge in areas that I feel comfortable. Right. But you know, the interesting thing is, and this is something I always have to caution my clients all the time, is... Whatever you define as the base, there's always a swing group of voters you have to deal with to get over the top, unless you're talking about a heavily Democratic or heavily Republican area. So, for instance, if you're a Democrat in Massachusetts, you would think of Suffolk County slash Boston as your base. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you could, you could, even though Boston is heavily Democratic, the reality is there are other parts of the state that augment that Democratic base. Some of its blue-collar areas, such as Fall River, such as New Bedford, Lowell, Lawrence, etc., Worcester, Springfield, and so forth. But you also have the university towns, and then, of course, the Democrats have to perform respectfully in suburban areas along the 495 and 128 corridors. So where Democrats in Massachusetts have lost is when they place an over-reliance on their base without realizing that you do have to get respectable percentages of the vote in these other areas, such as the suburban areas and such as the blue-collar towns. It doesn't matter if you get 99% of the vote in Cambridge or in another university town. They're only a small percentage of the vote, kind of like what the rural vote is in Nevada. Mm. And so the fallacy of President Trump's thinking of, quote-unquote, the base is basic mathematics. He received 46% of the national popular vote, number one. Number two, the three states that put him over the top, he won with pluralities, which means that third-party candidacies and or independent voters matter. So there's not really many more votes you can get from Republicans. That means that you necessarily have to reach across the aisle to talk to the Gary Johnson voters, the Evan McMullen voters, or even Republicans who voted for Hillary Clinton 
because they thought you were repulsive in 2016, those are precisely the voters you have to win back if you want to have a respectable victory, or really a victory in general. And it doesn't seem the president wants to do that right now. Now, one other thing that we've been looking at through your work is that you are currently researching and collecting data for how many early voters are going to the polls. We are now at, as you said, I think around 87, uh, 88 million voters right now. 87, and that's with numerous updates. Not ch- This is basically one of the things that you have to appreciate when you're compiling early voting data is all 50 states have their own schedules, number one. And number two, they have various degrees of openness as to how they share the data. So sometimes it's very simple. You just go to the website and download a file or look at the page and write the numbers down. Sometimes it involves knowing people in those states who can give you the information. Sometimes you have to get public records requests. But point being is all 50 of those states have different schedules, and you have to kind of understand when you can get the data at what time. But yes, we're currently sitting at about 87 million. I personally think by the time the day is over, we should hit 90 million if all the states that should have updated do in fact provide their updates. Mm-hmm. Of that 87 million, about 60 of that 87 are mail-in ballots, and another 27 million are in-person voters. And it's just incredible to me at how much the numbers have been shooting skywards. Uh, it, roughly, you're talking double the number who early voted in 2016. Hmm. Now, many on uh, on Twitter and in, on, on television and in the media have said, oh, don't look too deep into these early voting numbers. But you also challenged that notion. Why do you challenge do. that and what you're thinking about that? So there are a couple of thoughts I have about the early voting. Number one, as it is becoming a more and more statistically significant part of the entire electorate, in my opinion, you're foolish if you're not paying attention to it. The other part, I mean, because let me put it this way. When you're talking about easily half of the total vote is going to be cast before Election Day, wouldn't you kind of want to know the flavor of those people who are choosing to vote early? Mm -hmm. So that's point number one. Point number two is to properly understand the early vote, To be, you have to look at what it was in a previous election cycle, which in this case would be 2016. And so one of the things that immediately jumped out at me as I was looking at the early vote was the Democrats immediately jumped into a lead because they were encouraging their people to vote by mail. And in many states, the mail-in voting started well in advance of the in-person voting. So I started seeing these big Democratic leads. Now, the Republicans have started playing catch-up because, of course, of in-person voting. And this gets to another interesting aspect of the 2020 elections, and that is you have entirely different views about how to vote depending on your partisan affiliation. In other words, given concerns about the coronavirus and being in public in a potential super-spreader event, Democrats are more likely to want to vote by mail while the Republicans are more comfortable with in-person voting or even waiting until Election Day. Hmm. So the whole point of following early voting is just getting – I see it as a harbinger for a party's enthusiasm, which in a close election and or a close state can and does matter because enthusiasm to me is worth a point or two. The other part of what gets you to a victory is winning an adequate number of independents. And it's interesting because we're not really seeing uh, independents show up just yet in states like Florida we're, and in other states possibly such as North Carolina. Now, 
you know, when should we expect to see them? Later on, at early voting ends, or maybe on election day? So when you think about the type of voter who is an independent, you have to think of somebody, all of us here on what's known as election Twitter, we're intimately engaged in politics, and we think about it nonstop all day long. But you have to appreciate many people don't have that same level of love for politics. They're either cynical about it, number one, or number two, they are loosely engaged. So when you think of those types of people, those are the ones who are under no particular hurry to go vote. And that, of course, is what I think of as a more independent voter. They show up in greater numbers later on in the election cycle, such as right about now or on election day. Or if you're a state where you're, per you're permitted to mail in your ballot as long as it is postmarked on election day, those are the ones who start getting accounted after election day. So point being is they're showing up in greater numbers, but the ones who voted early on, of course, were the more partisan people who'd long since made up their mind. I mean, in my particular circumstances, I pretty much know who I'm going to vote for after qualifying ends in my home state. Well, John, thank you for joining us on WCCS. We are out of time, unfortunately. For those who would like to follow John Colvin, you can follow him at we at Win with JMC on Twitter or his website, JMC Analytics and it's JMC Analytics and Enterprises. Thank you. And it's a win with win with jmc.com is the URL of the website. And I typically like to post things about the world of politics and I make sure to keep a nonpartisan flavor in my analysis, both there and on Twitter. Well, we all need a little bit of nonpartisan, I think, these days. John, thank you for joining us, and thank you all for joining us on Sit Down for a Toss-Up. I'm Adam Bass. Go vote. Thank you, and goodbye. Perfect. All right. I will have that 